الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد we begin as we begin all of our seminars and that is by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is worthy of unconditional praise and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send his salat and his salam upon the most noble of creation our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as to what follows uh, then as you are all aware this seminar that I'm teaching on behalf of Al-Maghrib Institute is a seminar that deals with the tafsir of Surah Yasin and Surah Ar-Rahman and before I begin on the tafsir of Surah Yasin, just a very brief note about the importance of tafsir. One of the tabi'un, Iyas ibn Muawiyah, he said, the example of a group of people who recite the Quran without tafsir is like a group of people who get a letter from their king in the dark. And they have no idea how to read that letter. And the example of the one who does tafsir is like a person who brings a torch and he then reads the letter to them so that they understand what the king has told them to do. If you read the Quran without tafsir, it is literally as if you have almost zero understanding. Almost nothing of the mysteries, of the real meanings of the Quran has opened up to you. And when you understand tafsir, you realize you were actually illiterate of the Qur'an until the tafsir has come to you. And this is a reality that any amongst you who has studied tafsir of any surah, if you do an in-depth analysis of any surah, when you finish that analysis, you realize, I really understood nothing about the surah. And the reason for this is that the Qur'an is the only speech, it is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whose meanings truly are infinite, whose profundity is something that is beyond human comprehension. And the more time you spend on it, and the more you analyze it from any angle, linguistical angle, theological angle, legal angle, moral benefits, you will keep on extracting more and more benefits. And that is why the science of tafsir is a never-ending science. Scholars have been writing about tafsir from the beginning of time and they continue to write about tafsir and they continue to derive more meanings, meanings that are relevant for different societies, nuances, linguistic analysis. It is a never-ending chapter. And no doubt that reading a translation of the Qur'an is a very basic type of tafsir. This is tafsir level, not even one, this is level zero. Just to understand the meanings of these Arabic. But actual tafsir is more than just understanding the meanings. It answers questions such as, why was the surah revealed? Such as, what is the point of the surah? Such as, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intend by using this word instead of that word? Such as, what are some of the morals and lessons we can derive from this particular passage? And these are just some of the questions that tafsir answers. And insha'Allah ta'ala, in this seminar, in this series, you will see uh, much of these uh, analyses, much of these, if you like, methodologies of tafsir. And tonight we will begin with Surah Yasin.
Because it is the first surah that comes in the Quran chronologically. We'll begin with Surah Yasin uh, tonight and then all of tomorrow we will do Yasin. And then on Sunday, inshaAllah ta'ala, we will do all of Surah Ar-Rahman. And Surah Ar-Rahman, by the way, we will spend more time analyzing every word. It'll be grammatical analysis because it's a smaller surah. As for Surah Yasin, we'll have to analyze more the meanings, more of the broad uh, themes of the surah because Surah Yasin is obviously much longer. It is six pages, whereas Surah Rahman is only two and a half pages. So on Sunday, we'll actually, it'll actually be a good Arabic lesson for you as well because we will stop at every word and then translate every word and analyze what word it's in so that it'll also be a bit of an Arabic primer as well so you understand every single word. And as for Surah Yasin, it's going to be more of a thematic, it's called. It's a type of tafsir called thematic tafsir. We look at the themes more. We analyze what is the intent of the ayah and what is the intent of this particular passage. What are the morals we can derive from this particular passage. Now, Surah Yasin. I just called it Surah Yasin. But the question arises, where do the names of the surahs come from? Who is the one who puts the names on the surahs? Where did we get Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Al-Imran, Surah Al-Nisa, Surah Al-Ma'idah, Surah Al-An'am? Where do we get these names from? Who was the person or where, who were the people or where did the names of the surahs come from? And just FYI for your information, uh, when I was in the College of uh, Hadith in the University of Medina, uh, the fourth year my, of my undergraduate, I have a bachelor's and a master's, the fourth year of my undergraduate degree in the College of the Hadith that I was in, the class of tafsir that I took back then, I, was, I got the old system which was much more meticulous and more groundwork and more papers, they've changed it all now, unfortunately in my opinion. Uh, you had to write a paper for every class. And for the tafsir class in my fourth year, my paper topic was, where do the names of the surahs come from? Where are the names of the surahs? And so I did a very in-depth analysis of the names of the surahs of the Qur'an. And to summarize that research paper, there are three opinions about them. And inshallah, the correct position, the strongest position is that while some of the surahs of the Qur'an have been named by the Prophet the bulk of the surah names actually come from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un. The bulk of the surah names, they come from the Sahaba and Tabi'un. Only a few names our Prophet named. And the Sahaba never thought that the names of the surahs have to be divine. And that is why Surah Al-Baqarah has over 20 names narrated. They realized that just because even though Surah Al-Baqarah, our Prophet named it himself. That's one of the few names he actually named himself. Sahih Bukhari hadith, He named it himself. Read Al-Baqarah and Al-Imran. But the bulk of surahs, he, would, he did not name Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Rather, he would reference them by quoting the first ayah. So for example, Hadith in Sahih Muslim, that uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, there is a surah of 30 ayat. Whoever memorizes it, it will protect him from adab al-qabr. Then what did he say? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Tabarakalladhi biyadihi al-mulk wa huwa ala kulli shayin qadim. He did not say. What did he not say? Surah mulk. Or surah tabarak. Right? And this, for this reason, that surah names have always been multiple, varied. Not just one surah name. 
And to this day, we have differences between mushafs printed in different countries. They will have different surah names. You have to interrupt me. No problem. I'm sorry. No problem. Don't tell me it's a parking problem. It's a parking. It's a parking. How did I guess? Okay. <laughs> There's a Nissan Altima that is blocking the entire parking in the alley right here in the back. And if, if you don't move your car immediately, we're going to get it towed. So, inshallah, you have 90 seconds to go and move your Nissan Altima, otherwise we will tow it. Apologies. This is the salt to any Islamic lecture, right? Without any interruption for parking announcements, it's just something is wrong. So, we said that the names of the surahs are not necessarily divine. They're open. And that is why the mushafs printed in different lands, to this day, we find differences. So for example, uh, mushafs printed in Arab lands, by and large, versus mushafs printed in India and Pakistan. My mic is now falling off. Versus mushafs printed in India and Pakistan, they actually have different surah names for over almost a dozen surahs. For example, where is the Hafiz Sabjis? They're Moses. Surat Al-Insan versus Surat Al-Dahab. Surah Mulk versus Surah Tabarak. Surah Isra versus Surah Bani Israel. Surah Ghafir versus Mu'min. Surah what versus what? Others. Amin Sajda. Surah what else? Masad. Nice. Surah Lahab and Surah Masad. And on and on. Right? We have differences in the names of the surahs. So, Surah Yasin. What did our Prophet call it? Well, we will discover there are a number of ahadith with the name Surah Yasin. Because of this, the name stuck. And it is the most common name of the surah. However, some of the Sahaba have alternative names as well. Now, question. Why would we care what are the alternative names, the unknown names? I guarantee you, None of you has studied or known these names unless you've taken an advanced tafsir class. Why should I bring them up? What's the benefit in studying the alternative names that the Sahaba named the surah? Who can tell me? Yes. So the, the content of the surah, okay. What else? What they thought would summarize the surah best. What they thought was the gist of the surah, right? So it gives us multiple interpretations, if you like. What's happening with my mic here? It keeps on dropping off. It gives us multiple interpretations of the meaning of what the Sahaba understood the Surah as. And of the names that are mentioned of Surah Yasin is Al-Mudafi'ah. This is Al-Mudafi'ah. What does Al-Mudafi'ah mean? Al-Mudafi'ah means that which repels, that which pulls away. And so they felt that Surah Yasin repels evil from you. They called it Surah Al-Mudafi'ah. The Surah that repels. Of the names of Yasin was Surah Al-Qadiyah. Al-Qadiyah with a dot. Let me try the other ear. Perhaps the right ear. Maybe it wants to show me you should use the right ear as Sunnah. Yalla, let's see if this works. Okay. The reason why I don't like these mics is because it interferes with my glasses. That's why if you have the other one, it would work better. Yeah, the headset one. Because of the glasses, it always interferes. Uh, so the third name, this is the third name, right? We did Yasin, Mudafi'ah, and 
Qadi. The third name is Al Qadiya. And Al Qadiya means the one that grants, the one that gives you what you need. Because the Sahaba felt that when you recite Surah Yaseen for a need, you will get that need. Right? This one, this is a double one. I didn't want one, you gave me a double. Yalla, maybe this is easier. Okay. But turn it on. Is it on? Okay. The, third, the fourth name, this is the fourth name now, right? MashaAllah. There has to be AV problems and parking problems, always, or else the lectures are not authentically Islamic. Now, this is a part of the Sunnah of Islamic lectures in America. Okay. So we have now Yaseen, we have Mudafi'ah, we have Al Qadiyah. The final name that is mentioned from the Sahaba Suratu Al Mu'ammima. Suratu Al Mu'ammima. And Mu'ammima means the enveloper. Amma, Amma Tasarum, Mu'ammima. That which covers you. Because they felt that Surah Yaseen, when you recite it, it covers you with Allah's blessings. So notice these names that they gave for Surah Yasin. Al-Mudafi'ah, that which protects and saves you. Al-Qadiyah, that which gives you what you want. Al-Mu'ammima, that which envelops you in Allah's blessings. All of these names, they demonstrate the status of the Surah. They demonstrate how sacred the Surah, the Sahaba felt that it was. What are some of the blessings of Surah Yasin? What are some of the blessings of Surah Yasin? What are the ahadith narrated about Surah Yasin? And by the way, most surahs do not have ahadith narrated about them. Most surahs do not have ahadith narrated about them. As for Surah Yasin, it is an interesting surah in that there are quite a lot of ahadith narrated about it, and yet all of these ahadith are the subject of a lot of discussion whether they're authentic or not. So let us begin. The first of these hadith is authentic, no question about it, but it doesn't mention Yasin by name. It's a generic hadith that mentions the whole Quran in categories. And this is a hadith you should all memorize and make yourselves familiar with because you can use it for all of the surahs of the Quran. The first hadith, Wathila ibn al-Asqa' narrated that the Prophet said, I have been given in place of the Torah the seven long surahs. And I have been given in place of the Zabur of Dawood the Mi'een surahs. And I have been given in place of the Injil of Isa the Mathani surahs. And I have been preferred over all of the other prophets with the Mufassal Surahs. How many categories? Four categories. Who's memorized them without taking notes? Guys who are not taking notes, how do you expect to get all of this knowledge? Our Prophet said, Qayyidul ilm, trap knowledge. This is a hadith. They said, how should we trap it? He said, by writing it down, bin kitaba, reported by Khatib al-Baghdadi in his Kitab al-Fadl al-Ilm. It's a hadith, it's a command of the Prophet All of this a hadith and knowledge that you are listening to today, after the lecture finishes, where will you find this? Where will you get it from? It's very useful if you take notes even on your iPhone, iPod, whatever, so that you can benefit and then uh, tell others about it. So we just divided the Quran into how many categories? Four categories. 
Our Prophet said, I have been given in place of the Torah the seven Tiwal. The Tiwal means the lengthy ones, long surahs, the lengthy surahs. And our scholars say that the Tiwal are Baqarah all the way to, to what? Technically, it would be Tawbah, but they include Anfal as well. Anfal and Tawbah they include, they just put it extra in. For reasons beyond the scope of this class, I don't want to go into too much detail. And they say that these surahs, by the way, Fatiha is not counted in the Tawbah. Fatiha is not counted in the Tawbah. Fatiha is, Fatiha is the introduction, that's the introductory paragraph. And they say that, who can tell me what is the main characteristic of the Torah? Laws. And if you look at the bulk of Quranic laws, where does it occur? Baqarah, Ali Imran, Nisa, Ma'idah, An'am, Anfal, Tawbah, all of this is the laws. Salah, Zakah, everything, inheritance, Nikah, all of, of course there's some elsewhere, but I'm saying the bulk of laws are in these surahs. I have been given instead of the Torah, the seventh Tawbah. And I have been given instead of the Zabur, the Mi'in. Mi'in are the surahs that have roughly a hundred ayat. Roughly a hundred ayat. And generally speaking, there is some controversy. What are these categories? Generally speaking, Surah Yunus to Surah Fatir. Surah Yunus to Surah Fatir. I have been given instead of the Zabur, the Mi'in. What is the Zabur known for? What is it known for, not known as? Not quite. What's the main characteristic of the Psalms of David? Hmm? Praising. Praising. And these surahs have lots of praises of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they have been given, instead of the Injil, the Mathani. And the Mathani, most scholars say, is from Yasin to Hujurat. And this is instead of the Injil. So the Yasin Surah is the Surah that begins the Mathani. And it is very pertinent because the beginning of Yasin mentions indirectly Isa and his mission, as we will see. The beginning of Yasin mentions the story of Isa and his disciples in a very generic way, indirect way. And it makes sense, therefore, that Yasin is the beginning of the Mathani. And then he says, وَفُضِّلْتُ بِالْمُفَصَّلِ And I have been preferred over all of the other prophets with the Mufassal. And the Mufassal, there's a lot of controversy again where these begin and end, but the predominant opinion is the Mufassal is from Surah Qaf to Surah Nas. Surah Qaf to Surah Nas. And the Mufassal means the surahs that frequently stop. And they're called this because they're so short, every page or two, or in the Juz Amma, every third of a page, you're just stopping, 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 this is Mufassal. Fassal is a stop. Mufassal, that which is stopping. So these are the small surahs. Sometimes they're called Qisara Surah. 
And this is what the Prophet has been preferred with over all of the other Prophets. So, this is a generic hadith that every single surah in the Quran can be linked to. So we say, of the blessings of Surah Yasin, it is instead of the Injil that the Prophet Isa was given, our Prophet was given a section of the Quran beginning with Yasin. This is the first blessing, authentically narrated. The second hadith, which explicitly is the first one that explicitly mentions Yasin, Hassan al-Basri narrated from Abu Huraira that the Prophet said, Man qara'a Yasina fi laylatin ibtigha'a wajhillahi ta'ala ghufira lahu tilka al-layla. Rawahu al-Darimiyu fi sunanihi. Al-Hassan al-Basri reports from Abu Huraira that the Prophet said, Whoever reads Yasin, so he called it Yasin. Whoever reads Yasin in a night, meaning in one go, seeking the pleasure of Allah, meaning for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of his previous sins will be forgiven on that night. Now, this hadith is reported in a darimi, and a darimi is not of the famous books of hadith, it is meaning relatively, obviously, the six famous ones, and then there's a, a category beneath the six which is basically the tertiary books. And a darimi is in this category. <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> my voice is not up to its par. I just came back from a conference in Sweden and I lost my voice over there and I'm still recovering uh, from that conference. So we said a darimi sunan is not to the caliber or to the at par on the famous six books. And this hadith is the subject of a little bit of controversy and it is the most authentic of all of the hadith reported about Surah Yasin, yet still there is some talk about its authenticity. And without going into too much depth, some basic stuff, and perhaps you'll benefit understanding the sciences of hadith. So the problem comes, Al-Hassan al-Basri, there's a little bit of a controversy. Did he ever meet Abu Huraira or not? And this hadith comes from Al-Hassan al-Basri, from Abu Huraira, from the Prophet And Al-Hassan al-Basri died 110 Hijrah, Abu Huraira died 56 Hijrah. Hassan al-Basri definitely was old enough to have heard from him and, and meet him and whatnot. However, Abu Huraira died in Medina. Hassan al-Basri was born in Basra and he visited Medina most likely a few years after Abu Huraira died when he was a young man. He didn't get, when he got to Medina, Abu Huraira already passed away. And therefore, this hadith has a weakness in it that is called a missing link, literally. There's a missing link in it. There's a person or multiple people, we don't know, Al-Hassan al-Basri didn't tell us where he got it from. And therefore, this hadith is weak, however, multiple things here. First and foremost, the weakness in this hadith literally is one of the most trivial weaknesses imaginable. And that is because all missing links are not the same. This is a hadith benefit. All missing links are not the same. A missing link in the fourth or fifth generation is a very big deal. But a missing link from the Sahaba is completely ignored. 
Like if a Sahabi says, I heard from another Sahabi, but he doesn't say who. We don't care at all. As long as it's a Sahabi. Right? If one Sahabi says, I heard from some Sahabi, and he doesn't mention him. Or if somebody says, I heard from somebody who saw the Prophet and he doesn't mention his name. We don't even care. We don't even call this a missing link. It's ignored. Now, these are the two extremes. The missing link of the early Tabi'un, which is what we have now, is the most trivial missing link that actually constitutes weakness. Why? Why do we say a missing link in 56 Hijrah is much more trivial compared to a missing link in 200 Hijrah? Who can tell me? Sahaba were still alive, authenticity. What else? Sister in the back, you'll have to speak very loudly. I cannot hear you because our kids are playing, mashallah. Still can't hear you. Yes, go ahead. The Prophet talked about three generations. That's a good point, yes. It would have been narrated, but we don't have where it's narrated from. I'll tell you, the main point is lying against the Prophet was unknown in early, early Islam. Nobody had the... I don't like using the word audacity because that's not, not, not the right word here. Nobody had the stupidity. <laughs> no, this is not courage. There's no courage in lying about the Prophet Nobody had that weak iman or a lack of iman to actually lie about the Prophet in that early generations of Islam. Lying about the Prophet only began after a hundred years roughly. I mean again, don't, I mean, it's not hadith class, but after some period in time. So the only mistake imaginable in that generation is an honest mistake. Which is still a mistake by the way, but it's an honest mistake. So nonetheless, the bottom line, this hadith is very trivial weakness. Just a little bit weak. Because Hassan al-Basri did not meet Abu Hurairah. Okay, this leads me to my second point. What do we do with it now? Okay, we have made it da'if. And this is the correct position. Ibn Hajar himself and others, they say that. This is, has hadith has a slight weakness in it. Now what? What do we do with the da'if hadith? So, another point of benefit here. Da'if hadith, people go to a lot of different positions. What is to be done with the da'if hadith? And the position that I follow is the position that the bulk of the Ummah historically has followed. And that is, a da'if hadith can be used with a number of conditions. With a number of conditions. And then you have extreme positions about da'if hadith. The majority of the Ummah, and I am following this position, Say that you may use a da'if hadith if three conditions are met. Now, the problem comes, most of the people who use da'if hadith are not qualified to judge these three conditions. And what happened was scholars began quoting da'if hadith without these three conditions. And so this led to a counter-reaction that some of the stricter scholars says, you know what, let's just shut this door completely. Let's throw all hadith out the window. And that is a position that is well known. If the hadith is da'if, then khalas, we're not going to have anything to do with it. But this is the minority opinion. 
the majority, the bulk of the ummah historically has always used da'if hadith with conditions. And there are three primary conditions. Number one, that the da'if hadith be slightly weak and not very weak. Now this is the big question, who's going to decide? That's a whole science, I'm not going to tell it to you in this lecture. But suffice to say, for example, when I was in Medina, that was my specialization. I graduated, my bachelor's was in the College of Hadith. For four years, we immersed ourselves in isnads and chains and going up and down and drawing trees of narrators and whatnot, shajara is called, whatnot. This is something that requires specialization. And you learn what is slightly weak, what is very weak. And I've just given you an example right now of a slightly weak hadith. Hassan al-Basri did not mean Abu Hurairah. This is slightly weak. So this is the first condition. That the hadith be slightly weak, not very weak. And what the difference is, is beyond the school, but you just memorize this condition. The second condition. That the hadith be used in something called fadailul a'mal or some scholars say targhib al tarheeb now what does this mean it means that the hadith is not used in theology and in law you cannot use da'if hadith in theology in aqidah you find a da'if hadith and you make it your aqidah in allah in islam no nor can you use it for halal and haram it is not allowed to use da'if hadith to base your fiqh on you cannot do so by unanimous consensus of the scholars of Islam. Because fiqh cannot be based on a hadith that we're not sure even the Prophet said it. Or aqidah. So it has to be used in what is called fadailul a'mal or tarheeb al which means generic good or generic warnings and prohibitions. For example, praying a particular salah. Praying salah is fiqh. How we pray is fiqh. Now suppose there's a da'if hadith and there is a da'if hadith. That whoever prays two rak'ah on the night of Eid, such and such blessings will be given to him. Is praying two rak'ah established in Islam? Yes. This hadith comes and just adds a condition, which is not found in any other hadith. This is fadailul a'mal. Or for example, these types of a hadith that praise verses from the Qur'an, or praise surahs from the Qur'an. Is the Qur'an not blessed? Yes, so if a da'if hadith comes and praises a surah, what's the big deal? So we read Yasin just because of this hadith, what have we harmed ourselves? Is there any harm in reading Yasin? Suppose this hadith is weak. Is there any harm in reading Yasin? No. So the second condition, it's used in fadailul a'mal. And then the third condition, that anybody who narrates the hadith should inform the listeners that it is slightly weak. He should not equate it to a hadith of Bukhari and Muslim, let's say. It should be known to the people that this hadith about, let's say, Yasin, is not a hadith that is sahih, it is slightly weak. Okay? So, I have done all of these three conditions, inshallah. And so I don't have any problem narrating this hadith, and I don't have any problem that we read Surah Yasin with this niyyah in mind. Whoever reads Surah Yasin in any night, for the sake of Allah, that's the point now. Your niyyah has to be pure. You're doing it ibtigha'a wajhillah. Whoever reads Yasin with this pure niyyah, all of his sins will be forgiven. Okay, that's the, uh, the, the second hadith that we're mentioning about Surah Yasin. Okay? Yes, all of it. That is what the hadith says. Yes. Now the third hadith that we mention is the most famous hadith about Yasin. Many of you have heard of it. 
Anas ibn Malik narrates that the Prophet says, said, لِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَلْبٍ وَقَلْبُ الْقُرْآنِ يَاسِينَ مَنْ قَرَأَهَا فَكَأَنَّمَا قَرَأَ الْقُرْآنَ عَشَرَ مَرَّاتٍ رواه الترمذي في جامعه Anas ibn Malik said that the Prophet said that everything has a heart and the heart of the Qur'an is Yaseen. Whoever reads Yaseen, it is as if, no, yeah, it is as if he has read the whole Qur'an ten times. Now this hadith is reported in At-Tirmidhi's Sunan or Jami' and it is therefore very famous and many of you have heard the phrase Yaseen is the Qalb of the Qur'an. It is a common phrase that is said upon the tongues and it is mashhoor in the Ummah. However, this hadith beyond the shadow of a doubt is weak. And At-Tirmidhi himself who has narrated it mentions the weakness. And he says, هذا حديث غريب And when Tirmidhi says غريب, usually Tirmidhi's غريب means it is weak. And this is something we, we know by reading his Sunan and Jami' and extracting when he says غريب, what does he mean? And he typically means it is weak. And then he says, في سنده هارون أبو محمد وهو مجهول. In its isnad is a particular person, Harun. Abu Muhammad. Abu Muhammad is not his last name, it is his kunya. And he is unknown, we have no idea who he is. We have no idea, it's Harun. Harun is a common name. And we have no idea who he is. And a narrator who's majhul, al-ayn, majhul al-hal, majhul, in, the, uh, uh, in a chain, this makes the hadith definitely weak. Also, our scholars say that the meaning of, the, of this hadith really goes against common Islamic sense. Whoever reads Yaseen, it is as if he has read the whole Qur'an ten times. And the scholars of hadith, they say that there are signs of a hadith being fabricated or weak. Of them is, the meaning is nonsensical. And this hadith does not make sense because reading Yaseen is six pages. It's as if he's read the Qur'an ten times. It's a little bit too much exaggeration. Right? And therefore, the hadith of Qalb al-Qur'an Yaseen is clearly a weak hadith. And therefore, in my opinion, this weakness is bigger, much bigger than the one before this because the person is unknown majhul. And even a tirmidhi says, I have no idea who this man is. He himself, who's narrating the hadith, goes, I have no idea who this man is. And therefore, really, we should uh, consider this hadith to be a weak hadith. And the fourth hadith that we'll do uh, the fourth hadith that we'll do is the hadith of Ma'qad ibn Yasar that the Prophet said that Al-Baqarah is the pinnacle of the Qur'an. And Ayatul Kursi has been taken from under the throne of Ar-Rahman. And Yaseen is the Qalb of the Qur'an. So this phrase is the same. But this is not uh, the point that I'm pointing this hadith for. No one reads it for the sake of Allah except that his sins are forgiven. Therefore, recite Yaseen over your dead. This hadith is narrated in the Sunan of Abu Dawood and also the Muslim of Imam Ahmad. So this is another cultural thing that many of us are aware of. When somebody is dying, we recite Yaseen over them. Where do we get it from? 
this hadith of Ma'qal ibn Yasar. And it is reported in Sunan Abu Dawood and Musad Imam Ahmed. However, this hadith has some major problems as well. And in fact, we have two people in it that are completely unknown. And therefore, the bulk of the scholars of Islam, including Imam al-Nawi, including al qutni including Ibn Hajar, including uh, Shaykh al-Albani, all of them consider this hadith to be weak because it is you cannot deny when you look at the Isnad, there are in fact two people, not even one. Two people, one after the other, that are completely unknown. Now, what if somebody were to say, two weak hadith put together, strengthen each other, and they become hasan. They become acceptable. So, they say, the hadith of Anas mentions Yasin Qalb al-Qur'an. And the hadith of Ma'qal mentions Yasin Qalb al-Qur'an. Can't we take these two da'if hadith, put them together, and then strengthen them to the level of hasan? And the response is, this is valid only when both weaknesses are of a slight level. Little bit weak here, little bit weak there, we put them together and it becomes hasan. True. When you have two unknown narrators in one chain, and one unknown narrator in the other chain, these are very big weaknesses. And the bulk of the scholars of hadith would not take these two and add them together. And that's why the hadith is considered to be uh, weak. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. However, and this leads us to the last of the hadith that we're going to mention. A fifth hadith is narrated, which is actually not a hadith. It is something from the Sahaba. And so we act upon this. What is this? Ghudayf ibn al-Harith al-Thumali, and he is one of the Sahaba. Not one of the famous ones, but he is one of those who accompanied the Prophet When he was on his deathbed, he said, Does anyone here, has anyone memorized Surah Yasin? So a young man by the name of Salih ibn Shuraih said, I have. So he said, recite it over me. So Salih recited Surah Yasin over the Sahabi by the name of Ghudayf. And when he reached the 40th verse, Hulayf passed away. He died while reciting Surah Yasin. Salih was reciting. Hulayf passed away. Then Salih adds, Salih is not a Sahabi. He's a Tabi'i. Salih adds, our elders used to say, if Surah Yasin is recited over a person on his deathbed, it makes the death easy for him. And this is reported in Musnad Imam Ahmad and this is authentic. Now, an action of a companion, generally speaking, this is another point, you can benefit from it, an action of a companion does not take the status of a hadith. A fiqh position of a companion remains a fiqh position of a companion. However, something that deals with the knowledge of the unseen becomes a hadith when the sahaba says it. This is a rule of Islam, a rule of knowledge. When a companion says something about ilm al-ghayb, it automatically gets a free upgrade and it becomes a hadith. If a companion says this is halal and this is haram, that will always remain a fiqh of the position of the companion. The fiqh of the companions remains the fiqh of the companions. But the minute that the companion says something about ilm al-ghayb, if he says, in Jannah there's a tree, this and this. If he says that when the ruh dies, this happens. 
automatically what he says is upgraded, free upgrade, first class, automatic. Frequent flower given to him. Why? Why when a Sahabi says something about Jannah or Jahannam or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it becomes a hadith. But when he says something about haram and halal, it remains something about haram and halal that he said. Why? He must have heard it from the Prophet Whereas fiqh opinions can come from his own ijtihad. The Sahaba can make ijtihad in halal and haram. And therefore a Sahabi's ijtihad remains a Sahabi's ijtihad. But a Sahabi saying something about an angel, about heaven and hell, about Allah's attributes, about the ruh, instantaneously it gets the upgrade to a free hadith. Because no way he could have, you don't ijtihad about the angels. You don't ijtihad about the pleasures of Jannah or the punishments of Jannah. Right? Now, this hadith is kind of, sort of, in the middle. There's an element of how would he know this, right? But there's also an element of fiqh. Therefore, insha'Allah, there is really no problem in considering Surah Yasin as something that we should recite over our dead. Now, what does it mean over our dead? Not the corpse. We don't recite Yasin over the corpse. Over the one who's about to die. Over the one who's in the pangs of death. Right? There's no haraj, insha'Allah ta'ala, in accepting Surah Yasin as being of those who, of the surahs that we recite when a person is about to pass away. And especially even the content of it, as we will study insha'Allah today and tomorrow, is very relevant to death and to resurrection. And especially uh, the verse in Surah Yasin, which is one of the most optimistic verses for the one who is about to die. قِيلَ ادْخُلِ الْجَنَّةِ قَالَ يَا لَيْتِ خُمِي يَعْلَمُونَ بِمَا غَفَرَ لِرَبِّي وَجَعَلَنِي مِنَ الْمُكْرَمِينَ It was said to him, enter Jannah. He said, how I wish my people knew that Allah has forgiven me and He has honored me. So this is an optimistic verse which is in Surah Yasin. It fits in perfectly with uh, the content of a person passing away and moving on to the next life. Okay, these are the five a hadith will mention about the blessings of Yasin, and these are the main ones. There are a few that are more obscure, but these are the main ones, inshallah ta'ala. We move on. When was Surah Yasin revealed? And is there any cause of revelation? Sabab al Nuzul. Surah Yasin, it doesn't have anything authentic about exact timing it was revealed. However, it is clearly a Makkan Surah. And many say it is a middle Meccan surah. So Meccan period is typically divided into three eras. Early Meccan, middle Meccan, and late Meccan. And Yasin has typically been credited with being a middle Meccan surah. So it's not of the earliest revelations like Surah Al-Duha, Surah Iqra, Surah uh, we will talk about tomorrow, Surah Rahman is early Meccan. Whereas Surah Yasin appears to be middle Meccan surah. And the Meccan surahs, are the surahs that were revealed before the Hijrah and the Madani surahs were revealed after the Hijrah and Makki and Madani revelations have very marked differences. Makki and Madani revelations have very marked differences. Of the differences, Makki surahs, generally speaking, have short verses and Madani surahs have long verses. Compare Surah Baqarah with Surah Rahman. Surah Baqarah is Madani. Surah Rahman is Makki. 
right? Generally speaking, Makki surahs have powerful eloquence, almost a rhyming eloquence. This is Makki. Whereas Madani have much more longer, subtle, if you like, rhythm. Generally speaking, Makki surahs concentrate on aqidah, and Madani surahs have all of the laws. There are no laws revealed in Mecca that are specific laws. All of the specific laws revealed in Medina. And so Makki surahs concentrates on Tawheed and Risala and Akhirah and Qasas and Nabiyyin. Four things primarily. Tawheed, Risala of the Prophet that he is a Prophet, Akhirah, heaven and hell, and the stories of the Prophets. Almost all of the stories of the Prophets were revealed in Mecca. Surat, I mean the stories of Ibrahim, the stories of Musa, the story of Yusuf, all of these stories are revealed in Mecca. And Madani surahs, generally speaking, as we said, primarily have the uh, laws in them. And so, Surah Yasin, there doesn't seem to be a specific Sabab al Nuzul, but one or two things seem to have happened around or before the time of the revelation of Surah Yasin. Of the things that has been reported, is that once Abu Jahl came out of his house very angry, and he said, <coughs> and he said, the next time I see the Prophet Muhammad I will do this and this, I will threaten to do this to him. And so Allah revealed in the Quran, Surah Yasin, وَجَعَلْنَا We put barriers ahead of them, barriers behind them. We covered their eyes so that they are blinded. And so when Abu Jahl came out the next time and the Prophet was right in front of him, he could not see him. And he's saying, where is he, where is he? And the people say, can't you see? Because he was in front of him. So this could be one of the sabab al-nuzul. Yet another narration that is mentioned and found is that once Al-As ibn Wa'il, the father of Amr, Amr ibn Al-As, and he was one of the enemies of Islam, As. He was one of the leaders of Kufr, one of the Ra'as al-Kufr, Al-As ibn Wa'il. Al-As ibn Wa'il came to the Prophet and he waved a decaying bone in front of his face. Just a bone of an animal, he was about to decay, he waved it in front of his face. And he said, Ya Muhammad, O Muhammad Are you expecting me to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause this bone to come back to life after it is dust? Now these are phrases that are found in Surah Yasin as we'll see. Right? These are exact phrases that are found in Surah Yasin. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Na'am wallah. Yes, by Allah. Allah will resurrect it. And Allah will resurrect you. And Allah will cause you to enter Naru Jahannam. And at this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the last verses of Surah Yasin. Right? This is in the last verses of Surah Yasin is mentioned this surah. And uh, 
it is also mentioned that the night of the Hijrah, the night of the Hijrah, when the Prophet's house was surrounded by those young men of Quraysh who wanted to assassinate him, our Prophet recited Surah Yasin as he exited his house. And he used Surah Yasin to blind his enemies. And when he said this, they were all blinded. And he could walk out from right under their noses without them even knowing that he had left the house. So much so it is said that he even put dust onto their faces and they did not even realize where did this dust come from. And the final sabab and nuzul that is narrated, the final sabab and nuzul, the final reason of revelation that is narrated, it is mentioned that in the time of the Prophet there was a tribe in Medina by the name of the Banu Salama. This is in Medina, the Banu Salama. And the Banu Salama, they lived around what is today called Masjid Qiblatayn. Those who have gone to Medina, they know Masjid Qiblatayn, the famous masjid, that the Qibla was turned. Right? By the way, by the way, most people misunderstand these narrations. They believe that the Prophet himself changed the direction of the Qibla while he was in Salah. And this is not true at all. This is a complete misunderstanding. The Prophet prayed Fajr towards Baytul Maqdis and then the ayah came down and he prayed Dhuhr facing Mecca. And the Sahaba who prayed with him Dhuhr, they went back to Quba and they went back to what is now Qiblatayn and they were praying Asr at that time. And they made an announcement, O people of the masjid, we have just come back from the Prophet ﷺ praying dhuhr, and the ayah has come down. Turn your face towards Masjid al-Haram. So the Imam of Quba and the Imam of Qiblatayn in Salat al-Asr, this happened also in Quba by the way, a lot of people don't know this, they think it was only Qiblatayn. Quba and Qiblatayn, it both happened. In Salat al-Asr, the Imam turned around and walked between the Sufuf and everybody just turned around. That's why Masjid Qiblatayn is called Masjid Qiblatayn. And this is the Masjid of the Banu Salama. So, how long does it take to get from Medina, from the process of Masjid to Qiblatayn? Basically, almost Dhuhr to Asr. Or, I mean, I know this very well because the University of Medina is right behind Masjid Qiblatayn. Every day I would go there and back, never walking. But, well, twice walking. I didn't have cab fare once, I had to walk. But, uh, from Masjid Qiblatayn to Medina Masjid in our time with a direct highway, direct highway is around 45 minutes to an hour. In their time would have taken a little bit more because you're walking on sand and there's groves and whatnot, hour, hour and a half. Okay? Now, what's the story? The Banu Salama, the Banu Salama would pray regularly in the Haram. And they would walk all the way from what is now Qiblatayn to the Haram to pray with the Prophet as much as they could. Then they began to discuss amongst themselves. Why should we not move closer to the Haram? Now, for us living in America, we will say, what an obvious idea, what's the big deal? Sell this house and move there. But you're thinking, 
only like a 21st century Californian can think. A person living in Medina, firstly, the house he's living in is most likely the house of his great-great-grandfather as well. Secondly, your house is next to your gardens, your groves, your lands, your plantations. You need to take care of them. Thirdly, the way the houses are structured, your entire qabila is around you. Your brothers on this side, your cousins on that side, your uncles on that side. It's a very big deal for an entire community to sell everything and uproot themselves and move somewhere else. It'll be financial loss. It'll be scrap building from scratch. It's a very big deal. So they kept on debating this until finally they said, the rewards of being close to the Prophet are worth it. Yalla, bismillah. Let's pack our bags, tear everything down, start afresh, all the way over there. When the news reached the Prophet that the Banu Salama are moving to town, now, for in our times, it's one city. You have to realize, back then, Quba was not, it's outside the city. Qiblatayn is outside the city. It's a whole different city. It's not the Medina. It takes a while, an hour and a half to get there. It's not the same city, right? So when the Prophet heard they're moving, he recited to them that that Allah Azzawajal is saying, we will write down everything that they do and we will write down their footsteps. So he said, Ya Bani Salam, Diyawukum tuktabu athawukum, Diyawukum tuktabu athawukum. O Banu Salama, stay in your houses, your footsteps are being recorded. O Banu Salama, stay in your houses, your footsteps are being recorded. So he recited to them this verse of Surah Yasin, and from this, some scholars have misunderstood and they say Surah Yasin is a Madani Surah. Because Banu Salama is not in Mecca, it's in Medina. But this is incorrect and uh, it is a Makki Surah, and the meaning here is that sometimes our Prophet would recite a Makki revelation for something that happened in Medina. He's simply reciting to them what has already been revealed in Mecca, so the surah is clearly a Makki uh, surah. And what time do we break for salah? Huh? Okay, so we have uh, five minutes for questions, inshallah, and then we will stop and then uh, pray and then return. So we'll resume Surah Yasin's first ayat tafsir, we'll do after uh, Salat al Isha. So we have. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa wala ma'ba'd. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this surah with Yaseen. And Yaseen, as we all know, is of those surahs that begins with these letters. Alif, Lam, Mim, Ham, Mim, Ayn, Seen, Qaf, Noon, Kaf, Ha, Ya, Ayn, Sal. What are these letters? These letters in Arabic are called huruf al-muqatta'at. They are called huruf al-muqatta'at. And there has been a huge controversy amongst the scholars of tafsir about the meanings of the muqatta'at. And there are over 15 opinions. 
that are mentioned about the meanings of the muqatta'at and we do not have time to go into all of these opinions. We'll just mention uh, four or five of them that are more relevant for Yasin. Of the opinions that are not just for Yasin but all of the muqatta'at, the first opinion, nobody knows their meanings and there's no point talking about it. Just move on to the next ayah. This is the first opinion. Alif, Nam, Mim, whatever, just ignore it. We don't know what it means. Allah knows best, so no point discussing it. That's one opinion. Obviously, this opinion, frankly, has a lot of correctness in that nobody knows for sure. That's for sure. Nobody can say for sure what Allah means. But the position that this group holds is we don't even, we should waste our time discussing it. But, frankly, then why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal these letters if we didn't, if we're not expected to even think about them? So, that's one opinion. Another opinion is that all of these letters represent names for the surahs. And as an example, they give Yasin, Surah Yasin, Taha, Surah Taha, Noon, Surah Noon. But then the majority say if Allah wanted to name the surahs with these names, He would have used them at the beginning of every surah. And also, Surah Alif Lamim is not Surah Alif Lamim Baqarah. Right? <coughs> and also, Hamim and Alif Lamim occur in front of three, four, six, seven surahs. So this opinion also does not seem to be very sound. That the purpose of these letters is to name the surahs does not make any sense. Of the opinions is that these letters are names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So each letter represents one of the names of Allah. So Alif Lam Mim says, they say Allah and Latif and Majid, let's say. This is one interpretation. Right? So one of, each of these letters represents one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is an opinion. Of the interpretations, is that these letters are a means of giving an oath or qasam in Arabic. So a qasam is, I swear by Allah, this is qasam. So they say alif lam mim is a type of qasam. But the response is, this is not the way qasam is done in Arabic. We don't give an oath by Yasin or Hamim. So this opinion also does not seem to carry much, and Allah knows best. Of the interpretations is that, Yasin in particular, so this is specific for Yasin, all of these opinions are general for all of the muqatta'at. But one opinion is that Yasin is Arabic and it is in the language of the tribe of Qay, which is an Arab tribe. And Yasin is the way they would say Ya Insan. So Yasin means Ya Insan. And Ya Insan means what? O human. And from this we get two opinions, from this. The first is that Allah is addressing all of humanity. Oh mankind. And then He goes on. Well, Quran and Hakim. And the second is that He is addressing directly the Prophet Muhammad Ya insan, ya Rasulullah. And from this we get that notion that is common especially in some cultures. That Yasin is a name of the Prophet Muhammad. Because they say when Allah says Ya Insan, He's referencing only one Insan. And that Insan is the Prophet. So from this, one plus one gives you two. They say Yasin is one of the names of the Prophet. 
But frankly, this position academically does not seem to be very sound for one simple reason, and that is that the Quran was not revealed in the tribe of Tayyip. It was revealed in the tribe of the Quraysh. And this is not the way the Quraysh said Ya Insan, they didn't say Yasin. So for us to reinterpret the Quran upon the language of the tribe of Tayyip, which is another tribe of the Arabs, does not give much academic sense. And therefore, Allah knows best, but the correct position, which is uh, the opinion that many scholars hold, and it is one that I sympathize with a lot, and that is that all of the huruf al-muqatta'at, not just Yasin, all of them, is an indication of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, the miracle of the Qur'an. And the reason why they hold this position is, number one, if you look at all of these letters and compile them in a list, Alif, Lam, Mim, Ha, Mim, Kaf, Ha, Ya, Ain, Sal, Noon, Ta, you get exactly 14 letters, 14. And the Arabic alphabet is composed of 28, so exactly half are used. Number two, after every single time that Allah says one of these letters, the very next ayah is always about the Quran. Alif Lam Mim, Dalika al Kitab Hamim wal Kitab al Mubin, Yasin wal Quran al Hakim. Every single time that Allah Azza began some surah with this reference of one of the huruf al-muqatta'at, inevitably, directly, there's one or two exceptions that are indirect, we're not going to get into that for this class, but inevitably, 99% of the time, the next ayah is a direct reference to the Qur'an. So there appears to be a linkage between Alif, Lam, Mim, Ham, Mim, Taha, Yasin, and the Qur'an. And what is that linkage? The linkage is Allah is showing us the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. It is as if Allah is saying, look, this Qur'an is composed of the same letters you guys use. The same huruf you guys use. Here is half of them in the beginnings of the surahs. Bring the other half and then bring the Qur'an similar to this Qur'an. Or bring ten surahs similar to the Qur'an. Or bring one surah similar to the Qur'an. Or bring one ayah similar to the Qur'an. See if you can do it. This is one interpretation and it seems to make the most sense out of all the interpretations and Allah knows best. That all of the huruf al-muqatta'at <coughs> all of the huruf al-muqatta'at indicate the miracle of the Qur'an. And that the Qur'an cannot be imitated. And uh, as for the term Yasin, referring to the Prophet ﷺ, there does not seem to be, as I said, really any strong academic evidence for this. And also, by the way, just FYI, uh, for your information, some of the classical scholars did not like to name people with the surahs of the Qur'an or with Yasin. Uh, now, if somebody's name is Yasin, I'm not asking you to go change your name. Right? <laughs> But I'm saying some of the classical scholars did not like this. And it is authentically reported from Imam Malik ta'ala that somebody asked him, can I call my kid Yasin? Should I name somebody Yasin? And Imam Malik said, I don't like this. And, uh, uh, and in that terminology, I don't like it really is like haram. Then he would, Imam Malik in particular, 
would say akrabuhu, and he actually means haram because of his. Uh, anyway, that's besides the point. But I mean, the point is, he didn't want to, to name people Yasin. And he was said, why? Because he said that uh, a man will describe himself with the term Yasin, and people will describe Yasin as a person, but it is in fact a surah of the Quran. In other words, what he is saying is, somebody's going to say, How was Yasin? Meaning the person. So somebody will tell him, Yasin's really bad. But he's meaning the person. But the interpretation could be the surah is bad. You see what I'm trying to say? Right? That out of respect to the Quran, that somebody's going to describe the man with something negative, but somebody might interpret it to be the Quran being described as negative. So this was his interpretation, and that's, I'm not saying this is Quran or Sunnah, I mean this is an interpretation just for your information. I'm not asking anybody to, to change their name. However, and this is true, the Sahaba and Tabi'un and Taba Tabi'un, we don't have any Yasins and Tahas and Hamims amongst them. Okay? And there is some wisdom in this, that they understood this, they did not name their children with these types of names. And no doubt it is best to uh, take some benefit and guidance uh, from them. And uh, it does make sense what Imam Malik ta'ala said. So we say Yaseen means it's a qasam. It's an, uh, sorry, not a qasam. It is an indication of the miracle of the Quran. And then the qasam comes. What is the qasam? Wal Quran al Hakim. This is the qasam. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears the qasam. By the Qur'an that is Al-Hakim. And Al-Hakim means full of hikmah. Al-Hakim means full of laws as well. Al-Hakim is that which has hikmah, wisdom. Now, wisdom is an attribute that only something that is living can have. You do not describe an inanimate object with wisdom. You don't say the wall is Hakim. You only can describe a person or a living entity as Hakim. And Allah describes the Qur'an as Hakim. As if indicating that the Qur'an is the source of life. The Qur'an is what gives you that life. And Allah explicitly calls the Qur'an the spirit that gives you life. Allah calls the Qur'an the Ruh. He calls it in the Qur'an, one of the names of the Qur'an is Ar-Ruh. Why? Because the Qur'an is life-giving. It gives you life, it bestows life upon you. Wal-Qur'an al-Hakim. Allah is giving qasam by the Qur'an. I am swearing by the Qur'an. That is that life-giving Qur'an. The Qur'an that is full of wisdom. The Qur'an that is full of benefit. The Qur'an that is full of guidance. Wal-Qur'an al-Hakim. What is he swearing about? What is the point of the qasam? This is why the qasam is being given. Now, we all understand qasam. Qasam means something to make emphasis. We say it all the time. I swear by Allah, I'm telling the truth. Now, we as human beings, we are only allowed to give qasam using Allah's names and attributes. That's it. We are not allowed to give qasam by anything other than Allah's names and attributes. We cannot give qasam by ourselves. I swear by my life, not allowed. I swear by my mother's grave, not allowed. The Prophet said, whoever is going to give an oath, let him swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And once, 
Ibn Umar was doing tawaf around the Kaaba. Ibn Abbas was doing tawaf around the Kaaba. And he heard two people talking. And one of them said, I swear by the Kaaba I'm telling you the truth. He is swearing by the Kaaba. Ibn Abbas said, Do not swear by the Kaaba. Swear by the Rabbul Kaaba. Do not give an oath by the Kaaba. Give an oath by the Rabb of the Kaaba. This is Ibn Abbas saying, don't even give qasam with the Kaaba. Why is this? Because when you give an oath, when you give a qasam, think about it. You are trying to prove you're telling the truth to somebody else. And you want to invoke the name of an object that is so holy, so venerated, that you wouldn't dare lie. Correct? Which being is worthy of that much veneration? Only that one. Only. No other entity is worthy of that much respect. That when you mention the name, the other person says, okay, okay, I believe you, it's alright. Not you, not your honor, I swear by my honor. What is your honor compared to that of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No being is worthy of qasam other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah, being Allah, can give qasam on whatever He wants. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has two qasams in the Quran, two categories of qasams. Sometimes He gives qasam by Himself, which is what we do. فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ I swear by your Lord, He gives the qasam, which is Himself. And sometimes he gives qasam about something magnificent of the creation. Allah is allowed to give qasam by the creation because he created it. Because he's the creator. He can do it, not us. This is all qasam. Okay? Now this ayah is a qasam on the Quran. Yaseen wal Quran al Hakim. So which category does Qur'an fall under? Does it qasam with Allah or qasam with other than Allah? Qasam with the Qur'an is qasam with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the Qur'an is kalamullah. The Qur'an is Allah's kalam and attribute. And therefore, we are allowed to give qasam with the Qur'an and on the Qur'an and using the Qur'an. Whereas we cannot give qasam on the Kaaba. We cannot give qasam even on the Prophet ﷺ. But we can give qasam using the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an is kalamullah. We can swear by the Qur'an. And in these courts of laws, if they say, put your holy book, we may use the Qur'an, not a problem. We may give the qasam on the Qur'an because the Qur'an is uncreated. And the Qur'an is kalamullah. And therefore, qasam on the Qur'an is just like qasam on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Yasin wa Quran al-Hakim, innaka lamin al-mursaleen. Now, this sentence is the object of qasam, that this is why Allah is giving the qasam. And Allah does not need to give qasam, because Allah always speaks the truth. In fact, the Quran asks, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ قِيلًا وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ حَدِيثًا who is the one who speaks more true than Allah? Who is the one who speaks more true than Allah? No one. 
No one speaks the truth like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the common phrase, Sadaqallahu al-Azim. Sadaqallah. Allah always speaks the truth. So Allah does not need to give a qasam. So then why does He give qasam? To emphasize what is about to fall. When the one who's speaking the truth gives a qasam, you pay attention. Because everything is true, but now he's giving qasam. So something important is about to be said. And the phrase, إِنَّكَ لَمِنَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ has been strengthened by many different ways. And one of the problems of tafsir in English is that a lot of tafsir involves Arabic grammar. And you kind of sort of just have to gloss over it when you do it in English. This is one of the problems of tafsir. So I have to be very simplistic here. And say that this sentence, you are a messenger, you are of those who have been sent, has been strengthened, emphasized, in four different manners. The first of them, it comes after a qasam. Quranil hakim The second of them is the phrase inna has been used. Inna. And the phrase inna is called in Arabic harfu tawkidin wa nasb. The harf that emphasizes, this is the letter that emphasizes. The purpose of inna is to emphasize. This is the purpose of inna. Inna. And the fact that the lam comes, innaka la. This is lam al tawqeed, which is the lam of emphasis. This is the lam al tawqeed. So there's two. Now the word tawqeed means to emphasize. In English, we don't have tawqeed at all. It's gone, it's missing. And this is one of the problems when we translate the Quran into English. It sounds a bit weird because we are not used to the Arabic eloquence. So for example, Tawqeed used to exist, Shakespeare uses it, it exists verily, indeed. We don't speak like this anymore. Indeed, I shall go to university tomorrow. Nobody speaks like this anymore, right? Verily, a husband says to his wife, you're looking beautiful today. The whole point is gone. <laughs> you don't use emphasis anymore, it's gone. It's a khalas. Right? Whereas the Quran is full of tawqeeds and it's a part of the eloquence of the Arabic language, right? And that's what Allah is saying, Inna ka and then there's another way of emphasizing which is beyond us in English that we'll just go over. But there's four we'll just miss for this. But there's four ways that the phrase you are of those whom Allah has sent has been emphasized. Four different ways. That's how important this point is. That you, Ya Rasulullah, are amongst those who have been sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, anyone who's been sent, there are two concepts that must be mentioned when you send somebody. Firstly, who sent you? Secondly, where are you going? Who are you being sent to? Right? Clear? The Quran answers both of these questions. Number one, Tanzil al-Aziz al-Rahim. Aziz al-Rahim has sent you. Aziz al-Rahim has sent you. Number two, to warn a nation whose forefathers have never been warned, they are heedless. So the Quran answers the two first questions that come to mind. As soon as we are told, you have been sent, the two questions come, well, who's doing the sending? And where are you being sent to? And if you just read the next verses, you get these answers. Allah is sending you Aziz al-Rahim and you are being sent to a nation that has not had any 
prophet before them. Inna min al-mursaleen ala siratim mustaqeem. Inna min al-mursaleen ala siratim mustaqeem. The phrase ala siratim mustaqeem, it is half a sentence on a straight path. It's not a full sentence. And again, we have to be a bit simplistic because the Arabic is too advanced to translate into English how we get here. But I'm just trying to say, uh, this half sentence, we can understand it in one of two ways. It's not a full sentence. Ala mustaqim. There are two linguistic interpretations about how do we interpret upon the straight path. The first is to say, you are the one who has been sent with the straight path. You are the one who has been sent and you have the straight path with you. And the second interpretation, you are the one who has been sent and those who follow you will be upon the straight path. And both of these meanings are complementary. Now this is the beauty of the Qur'an, that you have meanings that actually complement one another. What are the two meanings? Number one, you have been sent with the straight path. The straight path is with you. Number two, you have been sent so that those who follow you will follow the straight path. And of course they're complementary in meaning. That he has the straight path and therefore those who follow him will be upon the straight path. And of course, the metaphor of the straight path is very common in the Quran. It's in the common in the Quran. It's a very common metaphor, and it is a metaphor that all cultures will understand. You want to get somewhere, the best way to get there is the straight line. You want to get from point A to point B, follow the straight line. That's the only way to get there. If you go left or right, you're not going to get to point B. You want to get to Jannah, there's one way to get there. And notice the path of Allah is always in the singular, Sirat al-Mustaqim. And the misguided paths in the Qur'an is always in the plural. Sirat, plural, singular, is the Sirat al-Mustaqim. Allah says, this is my path, singular. So follow it, and do not follow the other paths in the plural. So the path of Allah is one, and the paths of misguidance are many. And that is why when Allah talks about light in the Qur'an, it's always singular, nur. And when He talks about misguidance and darkness, it is plural, ghulumat. Light is one, darknesses are many. Truth is one, falsehood is many. The correct path is one, the evil paths are many. And this is a Quranic metaphor and message. Ala siratim mustaqim. That you are upon or you have with you the straight path. Tanzeel al Aziz al Rahim. Tanzeel al Aziz al Rahim. The word tanzeel is one of the names of the Quran. Tanzeel is one of the most common descriptions of the Quran. And the word tanzeel signifies many things. Firstly, tanzeel literally means it has come down. And so we get from this the simple theological point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above us and He sends the Qur'an down. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above and He sends the Qur'an down. And there's also secondly from here, this meaning that the Qur'an is directly from Allah to us. Direct. 
And this is explicitly mentioned in a hadith that the Prophet said, the Quran is the rope of Allah dangling from the heavens to the earth. Al-Quran Habulullah, he called it. Like literally, it's as if Allah has sent down a rope directly from him. Whoever holds on to it will be guided. Whoever does not hold on to it has not guidance. So the word Tanzil signifies this direct linkage. Allah has just freshly revealed it down. And that's why in one hadith he said, whoever wishes to write, recite the Quran freshly as it was revealed, then let him recite according to Ibn Mas'ud's recitation. So there is this meaning that the Quran is straight and direct from Allah, fresh from Allah. That's what Tanzil means. Another benefit of Tanzil is that Tanzil comes from Nazzala yunazzilu Tanzila. And Nazzala is different from Anzala. Anzala yunzilu inzal. Allah does not inzal the Quran, Allah tanzil al Quran. And the difference is between Nazzala and Anzala. What is the difference? Anzala means to come down. Nazzala means to break into pieces and send bit by bit down. This is what Nazzala means, which is what Tanzil comes from. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying the Quran came down bit by bit, Tanzil. Not the Quran came down all at once. And this is true. And this is important because the Quran is the only divine book that was revealed bit by bit over 23 years. The Torah came down all at once. Musa went up to Tur Sayna, he came down with Torah. The Injil all at once, the Zabur all at once, Suhaib Ibrahim all at once. It was only the Quran that Allah tanzil, bit by bit. And there are reasons for this that are beyond the scope of this, but primarily to uh, strengthen the Prophet wasallam to make it easier for him and better for us as well and there are other wisdoms beyond the scope of this class but Tanzil signifies that bit by bit revelation Tanzil Tanzil al-Aziz al-Rahim the Quran is a direct revelation bit by bit from al-Aziz and al-Rahim so Allah describes himself with two names al-Aziz and al-Rahim and the name Aziz has three meanings to it. <coughs> the name Aziz has three meanings to it. The first, Aziz means the one who is strong. Azza means Qawiya. Aziz means Al-Qawi. The second, the one who can never be defeated. The inconquerable. And this is similar to Al-Qahar and Al-Qahir. And the third meaning of Al-Aziz the one who has izzah, which means honor and glory. The one who has izzah, honor and glory. So Al-Aziz is the one of might and power. Al-Aziz, the one no one can destroy and harm. And Al-Aziz, the one who has honor. And of course, Ar-Rahim means the one who has rahmah. And the one who shows mercy to his creation. This is Ar-Rahim. Now, when two names of Allah occur together in the Qur'an, which is the common way of Allah's names. Almost always two names occur together. What is the most common combination of two names in the Qur'an? Everybody should know. 
Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim This is the most common combination Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Quiz was the second most common You know what? Maybe, I'm not sure actually <laughs> But I think another one is more common if, if it's not this, then it is second and third If I'm mistaken, basically two and three or I, I might be telling you the third one, or it might be the second one. But no, no. What? No, no, no. That's very uncommon. Only three times. He said, Al Aziz Al Hakim. Who says that? Al Aziz Al Hakim. What? Who said that? I didn't hear. Who said that? Okay, I didn't hear that. Okay, Al Aziz Al Hakim. If it's not the second, it's the third. Maybe, uh, maybe you're right that, that one. But Al-Aziz Al-Hakim is one of the most top three common. Al-Aziz Al-Hakim. Now, I go into a tangent here as I always do. Whenever two names of Allah occur together, there's always a third meaning that is derived. About why those two names have been put together and not any other two. There's always a third meaning that is derived. So, Al-Aziz Al-Rahim. From the name Al-Aziz, we get Allah is all-powerful. Allah has Izza. Allah is Al-Qawi. This is Al-Aziz. And from the name Al-Rahim, we get that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy. He has Rahmah. What is the wisdom of combining Al-Aziz and Al-Rahim? What do we get from the both of them? From the both of these names combined, we obtain the fact that most people, when they get power, they lose mercy. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful in spite of the fact He's also powerful. His mercy does not come from weakness. His mercy comes from strength. And most of mankind, look at the leaders, look at the tyrants, look at, it is human nature, power corrupts. It's human nature, when you become Aziz, you have a hard heart. It's human nature. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an Aziz or Rahim. His Izza has not caused him to forget or to not be merciful, and his mercy comes in spite of the fact he's Aziz. Whereas for us, most of the time, most of the time, mercy comes from weakness. But not for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Aziz al-Rahim put together brings about yet another meaning. Tanzeel al-Aziz al-Rahim لِتُنْذِرَ قَوْمًا مَا أُنْذِرَ آبَاؤُهُمْ فَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ That the primary audience of this now, by the way, there is a theory, and this theory makes a lot of sense, and I kind of sympathize with it. That the Prophet's da'wah from the beginning was not universal. Rather, it was made universal over a period of time. That initially the Prophet was told to preach only to his people. Then he was told to preach to the people of Mecca. Then he was told to preach to all of mankind. And this makes sense, and there are evidences from the Quran. So if this is the case, then this ayah makes complete sense. That this ayah came down in middle Mecca, as we said. And middle Mecca is what? Is when he is told to preach to Mecca only. Right? Middle Mecca revelation. 
لتندر قوما You will warn only one group That's the people of Mecca ما أندر أباؤهم Their forefathers were not warned before them فهم خافنون So they are heedless They have not heard of a message And our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the only Prophet that was sent to the Quraysh after their father Ismail. From Ismail all the way to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu the Quraysh did not have any Prophet. And they had no memory of Prophets. And they didn't even know what is a Prophet. And that is why when our Prophet was sent to them with a revelation, they said, what is a Prophet? What is a Rasul? What is a revelation? They had no idea. They were not like the Jews and Christians who knew what is a prophet, who knew what is... No, 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 no. They didn't even know what is a prophet. And that is why one of the Sahaba, uh, when, when he asked, what are you? And the Prophet said, Ana Nabi. So he said, what is Nabi? What is Nabi? I don't know what is Nabi. Right? So he said, Allah has sent me. Right? So he doesn't even know what is Nabi. And this is the point of the Quran as well, that it tells the Quraysh, what is a Nabi? What is a Rasul? What is a... Revelation. So this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, you are going to a people, they've never had any prophet. Now, what if somebody says they had Ismail? We say, they did have Ismail, but they had even forgotten who is Ismail as a prophet. So it is as if they never had a prophet. Their memory does not have any prophet. And therefore, they are heedless when it comes to what is prophecy, what is akhirah, what is uh, revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I see that my time is now up. And so I will have to stop here.